Um, I heard once that someone had gone through the whole Bible and counted that there are about 360 times in the Bible where God says, do not be afraid. And as they point out, that's basically like for every day of the year, you've got God saying to you, don't be afraid in a new way. It's, it's a little bit corny, but I like it. Uh, but it must be really important to God that we know this, that he is with us and that he's done something that means that we never need to live in fear. He keeps on saying it. Of course, you know, there are some skeptics like Gary from the internet uh, who says, oh, that, that one do not fear for every day of the year thing, that's a myth. Um, because actually there are 365.2422 days in a year. Okay, Gary. I guess we're just going to have to fend for ourselves on those remaining 5.2422 days. But, you know, even for the Garys of this world, it's clear that this is an important part of what God wants to say to us through the Scriptures. So we need to pay careful attention to it. We need to ask, why does God want us to be not afraid? Well, the original recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, they were facing situations and pressures that I'm certain made them terribly afraid at times, even to the point of giving up. And this is true for many, many Christians around the world today. So I think it's good that we ask the question, how does God meet them in their fear? What is he saying to them and what is he saying to us today? Let's pray just to begin. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you are the God who speaks to us. You are the God who sees us and sympathizes with us in all our experiences. Please open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today. Amen. So, I've been reading through this book of Hebrews for the last little while. Um, from what historians can gather, this letter um, seems to have been written around 60-something AD to a Jewish community, probably somewhere like Rome. These were people who had heard about Jesus and were convinced that he was the Messiah, the one that they'd been waiting for, who was the ultimate fulfillment of all that God had promised them and who was now ruling the world. It must have been pretty exciting for them. So as you read through this letter, and, and I really encourage you to do so, it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, but as you read through, you see how it revisits a lot of the key points in the story of the Bible, like God's covenant with Abraham, or how through Moses God led the Israelites out of slavery and, and brought them from homelessness in the wilderness into this land of abundance and belonging. Uh, but for the original audience, as they listened to this letter read out to them, it was not just a repeat of the old familiar Bible stories. It was their story, reminding them of their own history and heritage. But now they're hearing this familiar story illuminated by Jesus 
reinvigorated with a deeper significance and life breathed into it. Because in Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, they finally saw the fulfillment of God's end goal for creation, his mysterious plan revealed. As the letter kicks off from the first verse, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. It was an important reminder to them in the many dangers and difficulties they faced as Jewish Christians under Roman rule, a minority within a minority, doubly vulnerable. It reminded them that despite superficial appearances, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And it reminded them that in Jesus, God was not only repeating old promises, he was fulfilling and completing and renewing and expanding his promises and commitment to them in a way so marvelous that in fixing their eyes on Jesus, they would find hope and strength to face every one of the trials and difficulties with courage and assurance of God's unfailing love for them. For us in this room, I don't know that many of us will face situations on a level with what these people did. We'll face different things, challenging nonetheless. But the invitation still stands to listen to what God is speaking to us in and through Jesus. He wants us to see ourselves and our world in light of Jesus, to speak new life into our past and our future so that we too can live as a community of people who know what kind of king now sits on the highest throne and who are eager to follow him wherever he leads. As we are reminded in this letter, in following him, we will surely face many fears and trials. And fear is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's exactly the right thing to feel. Like if you hear fire alarms go off and you smell smoke, get out, there's the door. You know, that fear that you feel is a sign that there is something gone terribly wrong. But, you know, it's no good to address the fear alone as though it were the problem and not just a symptom. Like if God tells us, do not be afraid, all throughout the Bible, and yet does nothing about it, that would be the equivalent of coming to the person sitting in the burning building and, and saying, oh, no, don't get up, just, just relax, you know, everything's going to be fine. When God says, don't be afraid, he's not giving us a pep talk. He's giving us a promise. It means that he sees us. He sees us in a desperate situation. He knows that things have gone all wrong. And he's reminding us of his great promise to make every wrong right. But while fear is not bad in itself, it can lead us into dangerous places. Fear can paralyze us and it can make us behave in ways that once the heat of the moment has passed, we're ashamed to look back on and admit. We heard earlier that 
Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is where fear becomes deadly, when it feeds into a mistrust of God so that we value our self-preservation even at the expense of the one who gave us life in the first place. It sounds crazy to say it out loud, but we do this. And when we act on this mistrust, which is what the Bible calls sin, acting on a mistrust of God, when we act on it, we compromise ourselves and others in a way that we cannot undo. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 16, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Because in tragic irony, self-preservation often means turning away from the one who is the source of life. In John 8, he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. This is why he came, to free us, so that we might no longer act under the influence and fear of death, but be reconciled to God. What do you think about this whole idea of living forever? You know, some people speculate that eventually, in a matter of time, biotechnology will advance to the point where we can prevent the aging process in our bodies and keep them alive and healthy indefinitely. I don't know, maybe. You know, up until then, we have songs like Fame from the musical Fame to keep us going. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly. Does it surprise you to know, however, that not everyone wants to live forever? Some people shudder at the thought of a world where life goes on and on. And I think rightly so. See, I've had parents who were kind and generous. But I know that's not everyone's story. I hope you have never had the experience of living under the thumb of an abusive or domineering parent. But imagine if you had a whole line of living ancestors like this, always having a claim over you and demanding submission from you. We see right here that overcoming the power of death is so much more than merely keeping people alive. Because there is something in each one of us, like a deep insecurity, mistrust of God, that compels us to grasp life on our own terms and hide from God. Here's how it often plays out. We know that there is something that we ought to do, or a wrong we have done, that requires forgiveness and restoration. But our fear whispers to us, if you do good, it's going to turn out badly for you. If you share what you have, there won't be enough left for you. If you admit your mistakes, people are always going to be looking down on you. You recognize that voice? I do. Me Me and that voice... We go way back. It's always just playing on our fears and always with a variation on the underlying theme. 
if you trust God with everything, He'll eventually let you down. We need to call out that lie. Because if God truly is the source of life and of everything good, then separation from Him means absolute disaster. There is no life apart from the giver of life. And in his mercy, he daily holds us back. But what terror if he were to finally give us what we want and let us go. Because death is just the final separation, the consummation of a life that has accepted and absorbed the lie God cannot be trusted. And we see a portrait of this deadly combination of fear and mistrust in that famous story of Exodus, you know, one of the key moments in Israel's history that this letter speaks about. You remember that story of the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt? Why did Pharaoh enslave the Israelites? Because he was afraid of them. In Exodus chapter 1, we read, Look, said Pharaoh, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. So they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were repressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. See the vicious cycle here. Fear leads to oppressing and dehumanizing others, which leads to more fear. Isn't fear one of the reasons that we Australians lock up our asylum seekers in horrible conditions without a trial, without hope? Isn't it fear that makes for such successful marketing campaigns by the gun industry in the US? So that today there are more guns in the US than there are people We said before that there is one, do not be afraid, for every day of the year. Well, last year in the US, there were more mass shootings than days of the year. Sin and fear compound each other. And just like we saw earlier, all this springs from a deep mistrust of God. Look at the Exodus story again. If we rewind that story back just one page, God has just brought Egypt through a seven-year famine. In his mercy, God provided seven years of abundant crops immediately prior to this. And he placed Joseph in the highest position in Egypt, giving him wisdom and authority to see what was coming and to store up the extra grain so that there would be plenty throughout the years of famine. But then along comes a new pharaoh, and notice what he's getting the slaves to build. Storehouses. He's getting ready for the next famine. Now, but this time, he's going to do it on his own terms rather than trusting God. And we see the devastation that he brings upon his kingdom and his family by his untrusting, hardened heart. Because we see in Pharaoh that when one person enslaves another, they both lose their freedom. Our sin cuts both ways. 
The Exodus story is one example, but we see this all through the Bible at many times and in various ways. God's mercy, provision, his faithfulness. But we also see his adamant refusal to compromise himself by turning a blind eye when people act out their mistrust of him, by taking advantage of each other or exploiting each other. And he always aligns himself with the vulnerable and the oppressed. And he takes it very personally, saying, whatever you do to them, I consider it as though you're doing it to me. We read in Psalm 9, Yahweh is a refuge for the oppressed. Psalm 10, he is the helper of the fatherless. Psalm 11, he loves justice. But what happens when his people, the ones he promised to bless, become just as guilty of cheating the fatherless and perverting justice as everyone else? This is what happens. God's love and his commitment to his people is so strong, despite their failure, that he identifies himself with them yet again. And in Jesus, he becomes one of them. He chooses a path that we would never choose. That is, to give up his position and privilege and even his life, just so that he could stand alongside his creation to heal their corruption to bear their sins and to free them from the oppression that they are suffering from and that they are guilty of. Why would he do this? As we read in in Hebrews 1, Jesus, the Son of God, is the appointed heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. He rules over everything and he cares about it. But have you ever known of someone in such a position of power to go through such agony just for the sake of one of their subjects? What kind of ruler are we talking about here? We know that every king has a crown. Remember how Jesus received his crown and how its thorns pierced his brow. On the cross... Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's why he did it, because of grace. Which means it was a gift, a special kind of gift that is given with the intent of forming a bond between the giver and the receiver. Now our passage also says It was fitting that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Get that? It was fitting that God did it this way. That's another way of saying it's totally in line with his nature. It was fitting means that's a classic Yahweh move. You know, typical behavior of this God. He's always giving himself to his people at his own expense. So, of course, Jesus would do the same. That is how this king rules. The rulers of this world flex their muscles in all kinds of ways. When God flexes his muscles, 
It is compassion and willingness to give himself. We also see that on the cross, Jesus is not God's punching bag. As though God was so angry with us that he just had to take it out on someone. Because Hebrews chapter 1 says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, the son does nothing of his own initiative. He does whatever he sees his father doing. So when Jesus gives his life to rescue his people, this is an exact representation of God's heart for every one of us. I wonder if you've ever asked or heard someone else ask, why doesn't God just forgive? If he's so big and all-powerful, why does he need to go to so much trouble sending his son to die on the cross and all that? Is he really that petty that he can't just let it go and get over it? It's actually a great question to ask, and I hope that we all wrestle with it. Because as we spend time in the Bible with this question, we'll get a much bigger sense of who God is and who he made us to be. It's too big a topic to cover right now, and I don't want to give you a simplified, straight answer. But I do want to say one thing. Usually, when we say God could just forgive, it carries the implication that things will just go on as they were before. It's like you're walking down the street and a stranger bumps into you and they don't say sorry. And you say, I could get mad, but no, I'll just forgive them and move on. You remain strangers and you go your separate ways. But God knows that for us to go our separate ways from him means eternal separation from him. Because if you love someone... To just forgive them is to accept your estrangement and walk away. God forgives us in the most costly way, in the hope of our being reconciled and reunited to him. He forgives us with the intent of freeing us from everything that causes us to mistrust him and hide from him so that we'll never be separated again. As we read, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, that he might make atonement for their sins. He partook of our humanness, our flesh and blood, so that we might partake of his. By his spirit living in us, we share in his nature and in his everlasting life. Um, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight has spent time exploring all of the different metaphors and ways that the Bible uses to talk about how God forgives. 
through sacrifices of atonement, through the cancelling of a debt, or the paying of a ransom. And these all give us different aspects to understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. And in trying to find a common underlying theme, he summarizes them like this. They all speak of identification for the sake of incorporation. Jesus identifies himself with us. On the cross, Jesus represents both the abused innocent and the guilty abuser. It doesn't matter where on that spectrum you find yourself. Jesus sees you, stands alongside you to free you. As we read, because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He doesn't just command us to stop being afraid. He enters into our fears. God knows from personal experience what it is like to be afraid, to be pressured in a certain direction, to be vulnerable, even killable. He is with us during all of these times. But it's not only identification, it's identification for the sake of incorporation. Jesus doesn't free us so that we can go our separate ways. He rescues and forgives and restores us so that we can be brought into his family. As we heard, both the one who makes people holy and the people being made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. There are no second-class Christians. It doesn't matter who you are or for what you've been forgiven. Jesus is not ashamed, but overjoyed to call you his brother, his sister. And we have not been brought in alone as though we have to carry every burden ourselves. In fact, John Wesley went as far as to claim there is no such thing as a solitary Christian. See, it's not a sign of failure when we ask each other for help or when we carry each other through difficult times. That is a sign of Jesus' victory over the world. That is his glory. Because in his family... Those who were once slaves and those who were once slaveholders are now brothers and sisters, ready to taste death on behalf of the other in order to bring life to the other. Look to Jesus and you will see a God who is willing to meet you wherever you are and do whatever it takes to bring you to life. He has been proven worthy of all our trust. His perfect love drives out all fear. He has brought us into his family, and together may we follow where he leads. Finally, how might this impact us today? In the 1800s, when a group of people were campaigning against the abolition sorry, campaigning for the abolition of the slave trade, many people said to them, you lost your mind. 
Don't you know that the economy is going to collapse if we don't have slaves? These are not the words of someone free, are they? They're the words of someone enslaved by the fear of death, financial death. Because in many cases, they were not unaware of the inhumanity involved in the slave trade, but at best they saw it as a regrettable necessity, just the way that things are in the world. And they were unwilling to taste even a little bit of death in order to put an end to this desecration of the image of God imprinted on every single human being. Comedian Alice Fraser made this tongue-in-cheek comment about slavery. She says, you know, people today, we wonder how could people in the past have kept slaves where you have your slave in your house and they do your work for you. How could they not have the common decency to keep their slaves in sweatshops in other countries where they don't have to look at them? Ouch. We read that Jesus suffered on our behalf in order to lead many sons and daughters to glory. If he is leading us to glory and his crown of glory was a crown of thorns, Are we going to shrink back in fear when we are given the honor of sharing with Jesus in his willingness to taste death on behalf of others? This really comes down to the question, can we trust God? In our fears and doubts, let us fix our eyes on Jesus because the cross is his ultimate expression of fidelity to God. He knew that even there he could trust God and his faithfulness resulted in the everlasting, overflowing resurrection life that is on offer for us today. The cross is his ultimate expression of fidelity to God. But as God incarnate, the cross is also God's ultimate expression of fidelity to us. Because if he is willing to go that far for us, then we can be certain there is nothing he won't do, no matter how far or how many times we stray. The letter of Hebrews ends this way, quoting Deuteronomy and the Psalms. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Our loving Father, you have showered us with your generosity, your patience, There is nothing that you wouldn't do for us. We acknowledge before you in humility uh, our failing, our failure to trust you when we should, our failure to recognize your beautiful image 
in every other human being. And we just thank you of your overpowering forgiveness and love for us through your Son, Jesus. Amen.